This episode of Born to Baseball is sponsored by the BTB Travel Team and Training Tracker. Are you a parent or player searching for travel teams or training facilities in your area? Or are you a coach looking to expand your reach? And you have to check out the BTB Triple T Tracker at borntobaseball.com. Make sure your team is represented. Let's go. Calling all ball players. Are you ready to take your game to the next level? Were you born to baseball? Then bring it in. It's game time. Hey guys, and welcome to the Born to Baseball podcast. I'm Evan, and today we have the catching guy, Todd Coburn, with us. Todd was an all-conference catcher at Butte Junior College and went to the D2 College World Series with California Polytech State University. He was drafted by the Astros in 1991 and spent some time catching in the Phillies organization. He is the founder and president of The Catching Guy and Gamer Baseball. Todd, I really, really appreciate you being here today. You bet, Evan. Thanks for having me. Can you start us off by sharing your early baseball journey through high school? Did you always love catching? I did. I've always been a catcher from, uh, from literally practice number one. Um, kind of a funny story how it started. I, was, I actually got put in the outfield at first, but I was uh, kind of hard to focus, and I would watch airplanes fly by and birds fly by, and the coach had a good idea. said, you know what, we're going to make him have to focus, put him behind the plate. He said, Todd, put the gear on, and I fell in love with the position immediately. Um, and played it literally every year of my entire career, um, all the way up in the high school. And uh, I think I have a pretty unique story with, uh, with my experience, at least in high school baseball, and to getting to the point that I got to, I was actually uh, cut from the team my freshman year. I wasn't a very good baseball player. I love baseball. There was nowhere else I'd rather be. I just wasn't very good at it. Um, I got cut my freshman year of high school. I made the team my sophomore year. Um, I always say that I was just kind of average Joe, just average player, average hitter, average catcher. I did play most of the time because I was the best option that coach had. I made varsity my junior year. Super excited, of course. I thought I was going to be a varsity baseball player. I ended up being what they call the bullpen guy. All I did was warm up pitchers all season long. I got like 10 at bats my whole junior year. And uh, in between my junior and senior year, I, I, I had this mindset of, man, I, all I want to do is play baseball. I want to get a college scholarship. My dream has always been to play professional baseball, but I'm not even playing on my high, high school team. I better figure this out. And that's when work ethic kind of kicked in for me. And in, in between my junior and senior year, I, I, I practiced and worked out literally every day, practiced so much. My parents were like, hey, you need to take a break, take a day off. I'm like, no, I've got goals. I've got dreams. And to make a long story short, by the end of my senior season, I got drafted by the Houston Astros. So uh, pretty, pretty unique story. But yeah, I've always been a catcher um, and I always loved the position. And that's kind of where it all started for me. What was it about catching that made you fall in love with it so quickly? I think for me, it was, uh, again, I started at an early age. And one thing was when I put on that gear, I felt like a gladiator. I thought, man, this is really cool. I look all tough in this cool gear. Um, and then once the game started, I realized I had the whole field in front of me. All eyes were on me. Um, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, set an example for my team. I was always high energy. I would, I would never shut up and I just kind of fit perfectly into the position. I mean, that's, you know, communication and being loud and energetic is a super important part of being a catcher. 
and I just, with my personality type, uh, it just fit perfectly. So again, just being, being in the action, being involved in every pitch, I get bored really easily. I think that's where my work ethic comes to this damn, always doing a camp, always doing a clinic, always on a podcast, always doing something. Uh, cause I get bored really easy. And as a catcher, you're always in the action. So again, it just kind of, with my personality type, it fit right in. That's great. Like you mentioned, you were drafted out of high school, uh, but you decided to go to college instead. What influenced that decision? Uh, there was a couple things about that. Number one, um, I wasn't like a high draft pick where it was going to be like this life-changing money. Um, and I thought, you know what? I know I can't play baseball my entire life. I better get some school done. So I wanted to go to school to get bigger, better, stronger, and smarter. So it was a financial situation for the family. And also I knew I wanted to get some school done. So I knew uh, once I got drafted uh, at the level I did, it wasn't a very high draft pick. There wasn't very much money involved. I thought I need to get, get some uh, education and, uh, and just work on, you know, work harder and work on getting drafted even higher. That's a really mature decision too, because a lot of times it's like you get drafted and especially out of high school and it's like, it's a dream come true. Then it's like, you know what, let me make a, a smarter decision in a way, in a way. No, absolutely. hundred percent. It was, uh, you know, again, it was basically just going to be a plane ticket. They say, we, we, we will sign you if you want to sign, we'll get you out to spring training and what happens happens. So I thought, you know what, it just makes more sense to get some school done first. Again, continue to work hard like that work ethic kicked in and just continue to do that and, uh, and see what happens. And I did, I got drafted 10 rounds higher the next time I got drafted. So yes. I was drafted in 1990 drafted higher 1991 again it was another situation where you know financially it wasn't going to make that big of a difference uh for, for me and my family it made more sense uh to get to go play at an awesome awesome school live in an awesome city in san luis Obispo, california um play for a great program like you mentioned the intro get a get a chance to play in a college world series even though it was d2 college world series it's still a college world series great experience um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we almost won it all. We we, we lost four to two in the national championship oh. game. We're almost national champions. Um, but again, get, getting that school done, um, I, I fell in love with San Luis Obispo. I go back there all the time, and uh, never would have happened if I didn't decide to go to school instead. So pretty cool. Yes, definitely, really, really cool. You were an all conference catcher at Butte Junior College. What would you say were one or two things that contributed to your success? Um, well, definitely, uh, again, I kind of turned myself into a baseball player in, in high school. Um, so I think the, the thing that the biggest thing that attributed to my success and being able to um, be recognized all conference when I got to college was just the time I put in. Um, and I stress this all the time at my camps and tell them the kids that I work with. I was literally, and you can ask all my old teammates, I was literally the first one to the field whenever possible. Obviously, there were some instances where something for school prevented me from, from doing that or, mm -hmm. you know, other circumstances. But I was almost always the first one to practice in the batting cage. If there was no other teammates there, I was hitting off a tee until a teammate showed up and then we could throw to each other. And then after practice, depending on how practice went or if I had something going on after or not, then I'd be in the cage again, hitting more after. So 100% um, think it was due to my work ethic and the time that I put in. And for me, uh, 
I took a lot of pride in my performance. Um, I wanted to be known as the best. I wanted, uh, you know, my teammates to think I was the best. I wanted my opponents to think I was the best. So I took so much pride in everything that I did um, that there was no, no holding me back, so to speak. Um, and I, 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 that was always a goal of mine, be the best on the team, be the best in the conference, do what I could, you know, needed to do to, to, to shine and, and kind of made it happen. So I think work ethic is probably the number one most important thing. It's a huge key to success. Do you think that work ethic is something you can teach or does it just come with a player? That's a great question. So um, I stress it all the time. And there's some players that I speak with at my events that I think that portion of my talk goes in one ear and right out the other. And they still end up spending majority of their time playing video games, you know, vegging out on the couch, whatever you want to call it. But the ones who really listen, um, the ones that uh, really want to have success and want it to happen and really have a passion for the game and getting better. Those are the ones I can't tell you, uh, you know, again, I've been doing working with kids for over 20 years now, um, numerous emails, messages, even phone calls saying, Hey, you know, I thought my son had a good work ethic after your camp. He's taken it to a whole other level. I want to thank you so much. Not only is he doing better in baseball, but he's actually doing better in school because we understand that you don't get good grades, you don't play. So we got to work just as hard in the classroom as we do in the gym and on the field and the batting cage. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's something that I preach all the time. And the kids, I think that really, you know, have a passion and want to make it happen, make it happen. The kids, for whatever reason that, you know, baseball is just something that's fun for them or they enjoy catching, but it's not necessarily a goal of theirs. They might not, you know, vibe with it as much as the others do. So um, I've always said it that way too. If you truly want to make it happen, you'll make it happen. You'll, you'll buy in and you'll put in the time and you'll do what you got to do. Um, and if not, you won't. And there's, you know, maybe you just have a different passion in life and it's not going to be baseball or catching in particular. And it is what it is. And you, you just do the best that you can, whatever it is you decide you want to be the best at. It's a decision that uh, every player has to make, whether it's, it's really their passion or just something they enjoy doing. Excellent. Absolutely. What was your college World Series like? Um, like, what was that experience like? It sounds kind of funny, but I almost expected it to happen. That team that I played on, this was in 1993. We had our left fielder uh, signed and played in the Angels organization. Our center fielder signed and played in the White Sox organization. We had, uh, I don't know if the, our right fielder, our normal right fielder ended up playing professionally, but our third baseman played with the Brewers organization. Our shortstop, although he didn't play professionally, was probably the best shortstop I ever played with. We had a second baseman that played professionally. We had a first baseman that played professionally. I think four of our pitchers off of that team played professionally. I played professionally. So my point is we kind of had some swag to us. We knew we were very good. We had like 10 players off of one college team that played professionally. So we're basically a minor league team playing a bunch against a bunch of collegiate kids, you know? Um, and uh, I guess my first point again, what I'm getting at is, is uh, of course we were excited. Um, it was an amazing experience, really disappointing to not win at all because we went into that season 
with some swag, knowing we were good and expecting it to happen. And we basically made it happen. And then we just were that close to, to that ultimate goal of winning it all. Um, so again, I, I'm not downplaying it at all. I'm just saying it was like, it wasn't, wow, we made it. It was all right. We've, you know, we've accomplished the goal. We made this happen. Now let's win it all kind of thing. And it was, uh, it was, it was definitely exciting. It was fun. It was, um, you know, my first experience with, with, uh, uh, kids asking for autographs, asking for batting gloves. Can I have your hat? Some, one of the kids at one of the games asked if they could have my cleats, <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> just really cool to just be in that really, um, exciting atmosphere of really big time games and, and kind of, you know, led perfectly into playing some, some professional baseball. That's a ridiculous team you had. It has, <laughs> has to be awesome. Yep, we had a couple that were that close to making it to the big leagues, um, but no one off that team ended up playing the big leagues. We had plenty of guys who played six, seven, eight, nine years uh, professionally, and, and uh, we were staffed. Really good team. Fun to play for. You were actually drafted again, like you said, by the Astros. How did it feel to get drafted again, and how did you get your name kind of out in the scouting community? Um, was it like showcases, or was it a coach who advocated for you? You know, back in back in my day, um, there wasn't very many showcases. There wasn't uh, a lot of travel ball. Um, it was just, you know, right place, right time. Um, you gotta you gotta shine, so to speak, in front of the right people. So, uh, back in high school, just to kind of lead into this, um, like I said, I was I was I don't want to say I'm a nobody. That sounds pretty harsh, but I wasn't known in Northern Nevada in high school because my junior year I never played I played in 10 games so in between my junior and senior year I told you I worked out so much and worked out so hard and I think it's important to understand that confidence in my opinion is like the number one most important thing to be an athlete you have to have confidence in your abilities you have to have that swag if you want to succeed well confidence comes from practice comes from reps I practiced so much I went into my senior year both catching and hitting like on the hitting side of things, it didn't matter what that pitcher was going to throw to me. It didn't matter how hard he threw. I didn't care. I knew I prepared so well that I was going to succeed. So true story, my first two games of my senior season, well, the first game, I was three for three with two home runs and a triple. Wow. My, sec my second game, I was three for three with three home runs. So I had, I, yeah, I was... Uh, um, five home runs, six for six with five home runs in my first two games as a senior. Just went in with this, this confident swag attitude. I don't care what you throw me, I'm going to smash it. Well, that second, yeah, that second game in particular, there were some scouts in the stands to watch the opposing team's pitcher. The pitcher was a prospect. Um, and I just happened to have a three for three with three home run <laughs> game. And I actually think I threw two guys out catching. So the scouts started to take notice of me. Who's this kid? Who is this guy? And so I had to start filling out information cards for the scouts. And they started to come out to my games after that. So it was, one again, one of those right place, right time. And I had an amazing game in front of some, some scouts. And that kind of carried over into going into junior college um, where uh, you know, I made a name for myself. And so the scouts started to come out. And I had a pretty, pretty darn good first season. We had a really good team. Uh, my first year, Butte went to the playoffs. Um, we were 19 and one in league. Um, only lost one game. Really, really stacked. We had a, a right fielder who played professionally, a pitcher who played professionally. Um, so we just, we just again, just got had some good games in front of the right people, 
And, uh, and, and again, that's how I was able to get drafted. A lot of times it's just like being at the right place at the right time. Yep. 100%. Was it any different playing pro ball than college baseball? Like did the game speed up for you? <sighs> so every level that I played at, um, Hitting was always a challenge for me, even after I just told you what a great couple games I had there. I had five home runs in my first two games. I hit two more the rest of the season. <laughs> um, that's kind of a little side story to that. Uh, hitting was always a challenge for me. So, like, I batted about 360 my senior year in high school, about 310 my first year of college, just below 300 my second year. And my average continued to go down as the pitching got better and better. Um, so I guess my point is, by the time I got to professional baseball, those pitchers are pretty darn good, right? And so uh, I had some respectable seasons. I, I've had a 261 year, 280 another year, which is totally respectable numbers. Um, but I, re I really started to get overmatched with uh, not necessarily the fastballs. I could always hit the, the fastballs pretty good. But those pitchers that started to have the really good sliders and the really good curveballs. And uh, so the, the, the average continued to go down. So um, I guess to answer your question, defensively, I feel like I could catch and throw with the best of them. I was actually what they call a utility guy, which I'm sure you're aware of. And I ended up playing a mm -hmm. lot of third base, first base. I um, even played a little bit of outfield. So I was athletic enough, lucky enough to be athletic enough to play multiple positions. Um, so on the defensive side of things, I felt like I had, you know, big league tools. Um, but the, uh, the pitching, man, it kept getting better and better and better. And my average kept going down, down, down. And um, I was what they call a perfectionist. And if I didn't, uh, didn't do well, I'd get pretty frustrated with myself. Um, that's why I stress so much now at my events, the importance of the mental game. And, nice. uh, you know, really got to practice controlling your emotions and understanding that baseball is a game of failure. And, and uh, you have to learn to deal with those failures and that kind of stuff. So, um, again, to answer your question, the, the game didn't necessarily speed up. Just the pitching got better and the better pitching made me fail more often and the more failure got me frustrated. And, um, yeah, it was a really, really, really cool experience. It was always my ultimate goal and dream. Uh, pretty disappointed when I stopped playing, but I do love what I do now and getting to coach kids and telling my story. So. Hey, I mean, first of all, hitting's hard. Hitting's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I say it all the time. You gotta, you gotta learn to control your emotions. If your emotions start to control you, Baseball is a, is a game that, you know, if you try and try and play the game mad and overswing and overthrow, uh, it's, it's, it tends to mess everything up. So you have to learn to control those emotions, stay calm, stay level-headed. It's super, super important, maybe more importantly than the physical side. How did you become the catching guy? Uh, great question. So I, I did uh, – once I was done playing, I got into coaching. I coached at a couple of different high schools, a couple of different junior colleges. I was actually coaching at Cal Poly um, as their graduate assistant while I was getting my master's degree. And uh, way back in 2000, the year 2000, <clears throat> excuse me, I got into doing some lessons with some kids and working some baseball camps. And although I thought I wanted to be a collegiate coach, the second I started working with kids, I was like, wow, this is exactly where I need to be, um, you know, having a positive impact on kids' lives was uh, really impactful for me as well. Um, just seeing when, you know, teaching a, a young player, whether it's hitting, catching, pitching, whatever, and they get it and they succeed and they start to have some more success um, was amazing for me. Um, so I've been doing that ever since. So I started to run my own camps 
way back in 2006. And I did all around camps, hitting, infield, outfield, catching, you know, base running, everything. I'd done one of my camps. This was the fall of uh, 2016, I think it was, maybe 17. And I sat down in my office after camp. Um, definitely not bored with it. I loved what I did but and, and not burnt out but I just decided right there on the spot I need to make a I need to make a change every time at all my camps when I teach catching my energy level picks up I'm more excited about teaching it have the most fun teaching it and uh, looked on the social media trying to think of a name of something just to teach catching I typed in the catching guy I thought to myself man I'm just a true passionate catching guy I love teaching catching I'm the catching guy looked on social media if anyone had the catching guy nobody did punched it in started some pages and there you go I became known as a catching guy and it was just one of those things where I started posting some information just teaching what I normally teach and people started to eat it up I guess uh, you know whether it's my teaching style the way I word things whatever you want to call it people kind of vibe with it and I went from zero followers to 10,000 followers in like a month. And uh, yeah, now after four years, I'm, I'm well over 100,000 followers over all the different platforms and travel the country just teaching catching and speaking at conventions and, and all that kind of stuff. So kind of a funny story, but that's where it all came about. Um, just sitting in my office one day and decided to make a change and focus on my passion and what I love teaching the most. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a pretty cool story. And I mean, um, just like earlier, like finding what you're passionate about, um, like even if you, you might enjoy doing it, but really finding what you're passionate about doing what you, you love and enjoy the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm pretty, I'm pretty lucky to be able to do what I, what I love and do what I do, be able to make a living out of it. This is all I do for a living. I don't do any other side jobs. I'm just the catching guy and just get to teach, teach catching and work with kids. It's pretty cool. Kids and coaches. Yeah. Really cool. Who has been one of the most impactful people in your baseball career? Oh, man. Um, well, as a player, um, I was lucky enough uh, my senior year when it all started to click for me um, to have a coach who had a passion for the game. Um, he was actually a former catcher himself. You know, himself, he played uh, Actually, I don't think he played professionally. He may have played a little bit of minor league. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I can't remember. But I just know that he, he instilled this passion in me and this work ethic in me. Um, you know, I, I told you I would like a lot of times be the first one out to practice. Well, he'd be in the cage with me, you know, flipping me baseballs and, and, and really working with me to, to get me better. Um, his name's Ron Malcolm, Coach Malcolm. Um, real fiery coach, really intense. Um, and he kind of uh, helped me develop my, my passion and intensity toward the game and, and really striving to be the best. Um, so, again, as a player, it was definitely Coach Malcolm. Um, way back in Little League, it sounds funny because I'm, I'm almost 50 years old now, but I still remember my Little League coach. His name's Ray Pawnee. He was the first one to decide to put the gear on me and start that passion and, and, and love of the position of catcher. So, uh, if he didn't decide that day, that first practice, to have me put the gear on, there's no telling if I'd end up being a catcher or not, but I fell in love with it right away. So way back then, it was Coach Pawnee, high school coach, developed a passion for me. Um, and then, you know, nowadays, just uh, 
I mean, there's so many great catching guys out there that uh, I learn from every day. You know, the social media thing that, that we have nowadays is pretty amazing, the amount of information that's out there. Um, so there's, there's a whole bunch of guys out there that I follow, and I, I and literally daily, every morning I wake up and see what those guys post and, and learn from them, and it's, it's been pretty cool. So um, I think as the catching guy, probably my biggest mentor um, would be Jerry Weinstein, Coach Weinstein. Um, I don't know if you know who Coach Weinstein is. Uh, J-Dub, they call him. He's been in the game for like 50, 60 years. He actually recruited me. Um, he coached at Sac City Community College back when I was in high school. And uh, I went over to his, his facility for a workout, um, and he asked me to come play for him. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out, and I ended up at Butte College. But uh, Coach Weinstein is a mentor to a lot of us out there, um, not only catching guys, but just baseball coaches, period, just because of his knowledge and his, his passion for teaching and willing to help and, and all that. I, I have his phone number in my phone, and I can text him and ask him a question at any time, so it's pretty cool. So those are probably the three most that impacted me over my career. That That's great. And I mean, we're, I mean, we're all lucky to have people like that in our lives to help us out when we need it. hundred percent. So preparing for this interview, um, I reached out to a couple catchers to learn a little bit more about the position. And I realized like there's so many, so many interesting and, like important aspects when it comes to catching and just being out there and being the leader of the field and you're involved in every play. So you have to get almost everything right in a way. Sure. Uh, so your team can win. So what are some of the things that you did to develop a good relationship with the pitchers that you worked with that you feel that resulted in a good outcome? Um, so I, t I talk about this all the time at my events. Um, 100% the pitcher catch relationship is what we call paramount to team success. Right. Um, and I think developing the respect and trust of your pitcher starts in bullpens and starts in practice. Um, I think learning the personalities of each of your pitchers, um, understanding what their best pitch is, what they're really good at, what they might struggle with. Um, are they a pitcher who uh, you can get pretty intense with and, and, and I just call it lighten their butts up, go out and, and, and get on them pretty aggressively. Um, and then understanding the pitches, you need to go out and kind of pat them on the back a little bit, but just getting to know them personally, um, understanding their, their pitch repertoire. What, again, what's their best pitch? What pitch do we uh, just show every once in a while? Um, developing the trust as far as well sometimes obviously coaches calling the game but if I'm calling the game they can trust me and the fingers that I'm putting down the, the pitch that I'm asking them to throw is going to successfully get that hitter out you know developing that kind of trust um, developing their trust in they can bounce that curveball or change up to me and they know that I'm going to block it right so we, we want to throw that chase we call it a chase pitch get the batter to chase mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, all that trust and all that respect, in my opinion, comes from practice time and bullpen time. And if we can develop that relationship there, once we get in the game, we're just kind of in an uh, autopilot. We're on the same wavelength, so to speak. And we just go out there and do our thing and play the game. So um, a lot of catchers, I think, especially in particular young catchers, start to kind of dread bullpens um, especially on those days where we have to catch four of them in a row sometimes five of them in a row the other catcher wasn't at practice for whatever reason there was no one else available 
hey, we have five guys who have to throw 20, 30 pitch pens and you're the guy. So you're stuck in the bullpen literally all practice long. Um, but in, in my opinion, instead of dreading them, we need to see it as an opportunity for us to get better, work on our skills and, and, and receiving and blocking and, and footwork and everything and develop the, the relationship with that pitcher. So it all starts in bullpen time and practice time for sure. Yeah, uh, pitcher-catch relationships, they're, they're super important from what I'm hearing right now and from what I've heard from other catchers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an uh, important thing is, is uh, there should be some time even off the field where you're hanging out with the, you know, with the pitching staff, a lot of the pitchers and developing that personal relationship as well, not only the baseball relationship, but even off the field is super important. That's interesting. For players who are newer to catching, um, what would you say are the basics of receiving? And for more advanced catchers, what are the top one or two things that you're often correcting? So it's funny you ask about receiving first. I think probably whoever you spoke with lets you know that receiving is top priority for most catchers nowadays, just the way the, the game is evolving, the position is evolving. Um, they've been able to in the last – three or four years really since I became the catching guy they've they've been able to quantify or put a number on how catchers receive how they block you know how successful are they at different skills and they've just found that how we receive the baseball will have more impact on an bat on an inning and on a game than anything else we do um, so receiving has definitely been been prioritized it's been put at the top of the list and in probably the last two, maybe even three years, the way we receive has changed tremendously. So one of the things they found with all the data and analysis and everything that they're doing, the stuff I was just mentioning, they found that the catchers that move the ball are getting significantly more strike calls. So back when I was playing and even when I first started the catching guy, I was what we call a stick it guy. So stick in the pitch means minimize movement. Wherever the pitcher throws it, you get your mitt behind it, you receive it, and you freeze. And then you let the umpire decide if it's a strike or not. Well, and I believe it was probably the Dodgers who were the catalyst of this. They started filming every pitch of every game at every level, and they would watch how their catcher received it, where, what, where, what was the location of the pitch, how did our catcher receive that pitch, did they move, did they stick, did their glove turn? Did their arm move? And what they found was when they, the catchers received a pitch that was a borderline pitch, it could go either way. It could be a ball or a strike. So it was probably just off the strike zone. Mm -hmm. They found that when their catcher received it and stuck it, they got a strike call. And I'm, my numbers aren't going to be exact, but you get the point. They got a strike call like 11% of the time. The pitch was a ball. It was out of the strike zone. They caught it, froze but they got, still got a strike call 11% of the time. Well, the, they've watched again, and then the times where the catcher would catch it and move it over a little bit, they got a strike call 17% of the time. Wow. Even, though that's a, even, that's, even though that's a small percentage, it's a higher percentage. They're getting, more, they're getting more strike calls. Mm -hmm. So if we can get that strike call, depending on the count, anytime we can get the count to two strikes, it changes everything. Even in the big leagues, the average, no, let's say it's a 1-1 a one -one count. Okay, we catch that borderline pitch. We pushed it away from the strike zone instead of moving it toward the strike zone, and it was called a ball. So now it's 2-1. Again, my numbers aren't going to be exact, but it's somewhere like 
2-1 count in the big leagues, the average is like around 300, maybe even just over 300. But if I catch that borderline pitch and I move it toward the strike zone and I get the umpire to call it a strike and now the count is one and two, the batting average drops down to around 200, if not under 200. Yeah. So if we can, yeah, absolutely. So if we can get every strike we get, especially getting those even counts and getting getting our pitcher ahead, the chances of the batter succeeding go significantly down. So again, what they found is the catchers that move the ball are getting more strikes more strikes equals more success for the pitcher, which in turn helps, you know, makes more success for the team and more wins for the team. So it's one of those things uh, that is often debated on social media. Um, there was actually a talk about it, kind of, uh, you could say a debate or even maybe even call it an argument on Twitter between catching coaches. There's some traditionalists, um, some that do not believe in moving the ball. Um, but again, the numbers don't lie. The numbers are showing that catchers that move the ball are getting more strike balls. Um, so I guess my whole point, kind of get back to your, your question, you're asking about some, some you know, uh, fundamentals of receiving. When I teach receiving, we talk about um, being on time. And all on time means is as we're receiving the pitch, we want our mitt moving toward the strike zone. That's how we know we're on time. If our mitt's moving away from the strike zone, we got to that pitch late. Um, we want to manipulate the ball or manipulate the mitt. College, uh, coaches call it different things. So um, constantly moving the ball toward the strike zone. And then we want to give the, uh, the umpire a nice, consistent look, both with our mitt position and the movements that we make. So those are the, the, what I call the big three of receiving. And again, the biggest thing that they've come to find that helps the most is, is moving the ball, is getting more strike calls. Okay. And when you say giving the umpire like a consistent look and always moving the glove, what do you mean by that? So uh, when at all possible, and I don't have my mitt with me or else I show you that, but I can use my hand as an example. So with my hand in this position, with my thumb aimed up, my mitt would be in a vertical position. Okay. okay. With my thumb pointing to the side, now my mitt is flat or horizontal. We want to give the umpire a horizontal mitt position look as often as possible. If we have to go vertical for any reason, we want to turn our mitt really quickly back to horizontal because there's going to be more of the mitt over the plate or over the strike zone, in the strike zone. So if I catch, yeah, if I receive a pitch down the middle like this, and then the pitch is over here on the edge and I turn my mitt vertical, but I leave it there, that's a different look for the umpire. And that's telling the umpire, oh, this pitch must be off the plate a little bit. He's turning his mitt vertical to catch it. So the more consistently we can make the mitt look the same, sometimes we go thumb down and we turn it up. Sometimes we go thumb up and we turn it down. But getting your mitt looking the same, that's one aspect of giving the umpire a consistent look is with what our mitt looks like. And then also, if we, every time the pitch is in the strike zone, we stick it. And every time the pitch is a little bit out of the strike zone, we move it they'll start to pick up on that. So when they see, they might, if, and it, by the way, if they see the move, that means we move late. It should be as you're receiving it. If I catch it and then move, the umpire will see it. And now they're going to start to question what they saw and we might not get the strike call. So as long as we're catching it and moving it all at the same time, we, that's a consistent look for the umpire. And so sometimes there'll even be pitches that are already in the strike zone we're going to move those a little bit too. If it's low in the strike zone and it's already a strike, but it's low, I'm going to lift it a little bit. If it's at the top of the strike zone, it's already a strike, but I'm going to catch it and move it down a little bit. If it's off to the sides a little bit. So I'm constantly giving the mitt just a little subtle move 
Sometimes we move more than others. Um, I'm not sure how much you follow on social media, but there was a pitch last night in the Padres game that Austin Hedges caught. It was like six inches out of the strike zone. It was like four inches from the ground, and he caught it and lifted it up really quick as he was catching it, and the umpire called it a strike, and everyone was going nuts on social media. Like, this is – of course wow. they blamed it on – yeah, of course they blamed it on the umpire. They said this is the yeah. worst umpiring ever. Well, is it bad umpiring? Is it really good receiving by Austin Hedges, right? Mm -hmm. so he moved it so quickly and so on time that, yes, he kind of fooled the umpire. But that's our job is to try and get as many strikes as possible for our pitcher to help our pitcher and team succeed. So, you know, moving the ball is getting more strike calls. So that's what I mean by consistent look is always moving, a little subtle move, and get our mitt looking the same as often as possible. Sometimes it's nearly impossible, especially in the big leagues nowadays to have those so many pitchers throwing 100 miles an hour, and not only is it moving at 100 miles an hour, but it's moving yeah. <laughs> at the same time. So sometimes, you know, we're catching a pitch and just trying not to break our thumb or let the ball fly by. So our mid position, sometimes it can be challenging to make it look the same for the umpire, but when at all possible, giving them, giving them a consistent look will get us more strike calls. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense, at least for me now. Yeah, there you go. So... I'd like to talk to you about some like receiving techniques uh, for our listeners. I know you mentioned your big three. Um, I believe you only mentioned one of them though. So if you can mention all three and how they kind of help you uh, get increased strike calls. Sure. So I, I actually did say all three. I just didn't say a number before. Oh, I just okay. kind of, that's right. I just kind of spit all that information out. Just so I'll make it a little more clear. So number one on the list, the most important thing with receiving is being on time. Um, and, and as I was saying, being on time, all that means is, so if say my fist is the baseball, I set my mitt here and this is where the pitch is. I have to move my mitt over to catch it. If I get there late, my mitt's going to go like this. Mm. As I catch it, my mitt's going to be moving away from the strike zone. So to be on time, I have to get my hand behind it as quickly as possible then the ball gets there. And if that happens, I'm able to move my mitt toward the strike zone. So again, sometimes it's impossible. These guys are throwing so hard with so much movement. It's nearly mm -hmm. impossible to be on time every time. Yeah, definitely. But when at all possible, we want to beat the ball to the spot it's going to get our mitt around it and bring it back. So if the pitch is high in the zone, maybe even just out of the zone, I have to do my best to get over the top of it and then have my mitt moving down as I catch it. If it's down to the bottom of the zone, I want to have my mitt underneath it and moving up as I catch it. If it's on either edge, I need to get around it or inside of it and move it back as I'm catching it. So that's what being on time means is your mitt is moving toward the strike zone. And again, sometimes we move it more than others. Depends on pitch location, how early were we, how late were we, that kind of stuff. Um, and I'll, tell, I'll explain this to you. The way we're on time, there's two components to being on time, in my opinion what I teach. Number one is you have to be relaxed. A relaxed body is a quick body. If I'm really tense back there and the pitch is away from where I'm expecting it, if my muscles are flexed and I'm tense, I'm going to move slower. If I'm relaxed, I'm going to move a lot quicker. It's just the way the body works. You get into the physiology of the body. A relaxed muscle moves or contracts faster than a tense muscle. So we want to be relaxed. So that's why if you watch baseball nowadays, you'll see so many catchers, pretty much all of them, there are very few instances where they hold their mitt still. Most catchers, most of the best anyways, will show their target and then they relax their hand and their hand goes all the way down and they touch the ground. Okay, so they're, what they're doing is they're relaxing their hand, wrist, and form. They're relaxing their shoulder. 
they're getting their mitt down below the strike zone so they can move back up toward the strike zone as they receive the pitch. They're relaxing and getting below the zone. Okay, and then another component to being on time is, and this isn't always possible with pitchers your age, uh, but you get to higher levels where the pitchers can throw it where they want, inside and low, outside and low, up and in, up and away, down the middle. So if you have a pitcher that's able to throw it where they want, in order to be on time, it just makes sense to move my mitt into the area where I'm expecting the pitch to go. So my mitt is already over there. So if I want that down and away to a righty, and then the pitcher hits their spot, my mitt's already there. Because before the pitcher even threw it, I moved my mitt into that area. So that's how we're on time. We relax, and then we move our mitt into the area of anticipated pitch location. That's going to help us be on time and be able to move it back to where the strike zone as we're receiving it. So again, number one on my big three is timing. We have to be on time. And it's funny because I just posted a, a video. Um, this was either the beginning of this week or the end of last week. And I got into a little bit of debate with some coaches out there that are saying, uh, you can't teach kids to do that, to move the ball. The, the guys in the big leagues can do it because they're so much stronger, more advanced, more experienced. Um, in my opinion, and again, I've been working with kids for 20 years, so I can, I've seen the difference. I've seen it's possible. It just makes sense that, that we should be, you can and should be teaching kids advanced techniques. And I have plenty of examples out there of kids that I've worked with that are around your age. They're only 11, 12 years old, and they're just moving pitches, you know, and manipulating the mitt and getting strike after strike call, even at the lower level. So it's 100% possible to, to have kids use these advanced techniques, Okay. Um, number two is going to be manipulate the mitt or move the mitt, move the ball again, back in my day. And even more recently, like in the last few years, um, we used to teach stick it, but they found that moving the ball gets more strikes. So we've already had a really in-depth talk about that and why we move it and how we move it. Yeah. Um, so number two on my list of big three is moving the ball. And then number three is like, we just got into depth was, uh, giving the umpire a nice consistent look. So number one, timing. Number two, manipulate the mitt. Number three, give the umpire a consistent look. Those are, in my opinion, the three most important things in receiving. And some of the uh, catching guys out there might have a little bit different philosophy or feelings on some of those, and they might, you know, switch those around or something. But that's that's in you know for the catching guy for Coach Todd. That's that's in my opinion the big three. Yeah, well, that's really insightful, and those are some great tips. I mean, for for catchers and being able to in a way, steal strikes. There you go. Exactly. Some coaches don't like the terminology steal strikes, but I say it that way all the time. We're, 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 I call it mitt magic. When done correctly, when done correctly, it's like a magic trick. The umpire literally can't see it. I've actually, I've actually talked to a big league umpire about that, and he said, they're, good, they're so good at it, Todd, we can't see it. You know, everyone has that center field camera view, so we have all the um, you know, dads and, and, and parents out there and coaches that see the center field camera view and they're like, oh my gosh, Hedges moved that 12 inches. How is the umpire calling that a strike? Well, try and get behind a catcher on a pitch moving at 100 miles an hour and a catcher using correct technique. They can't see it. That's why I call it mint magic. It's a, it's a magician. We're magicians back there. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that name. Yeah. I, yeah. It's clever. <laughs> so... Catching definitely is not for everyone and is probably the toughest defensive position out there. So what are some characteristics of a young player that they should have if they want to be a great catcher? So on the, for young catchers, um, 
I think they're sometimes leadership that, uh, that field general mentality comes natural to some kids, but most kids, that side of it, it comes over time. It comes with experience. You start to develop more confidence in yourself back there. Um, so in my opinion, for most young catchers, probably the most important quality, um, obviously you need to be able to catch the ball, right? And you need yeah. to, you got you to do your responsibilities back there. But the most important characteristic is physical toughness, physical and mental toughness. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You have to go into it understanding you're, you're probably going to have some pain at some point of the game. You're going to get, you're going to get hit by the ball. Your legs are going to get tired from squatting. Your arms are going to get tired from throwing so much. Um, sometimes you run into the runner, you know, the runner's coming in to score and you're catching and you're just, all you're doing is turning to try and tag. And just the way the play worked out, you guys run into each other. Um, the bats flying right past you. Sometimes the batter throws the bat and it hits you. I mean, there's so many things that happen back there as a catcher that are, create or cause physical pain <laughs> that uh, it takes a really unique personality to be able to deal with that pain. So um, physical toughness. And again, I always include mental toughness, being able to, to deal with the grind of being a catcher. You know, some kids, when they get tired, they're like, I'm done. I'm tired. My feet hurt. I don't want to play anymore. But as a catcher, we're like, I'm tired, my feet hurt, my head hurts, my arms kill me, my wrist hurts from the ball I just blocked in the dirt, and I got a foul tip off my big toe. But it's the life of a catcher. So it says on my shirt, it's the life of a catcher. I'm going to deal with it, and I'm going to pound through it, and I'm just going to keep going and be there for my pitcher and be there for my team. So, again, to kind of get back to your question, I think for in particular for young catchers, you have to understand it's a grind being back there, um, and you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and deal with the pain. Um, and toughness you have to be physically and mentally tough to be a catcher so how do you train catchers at the youth level to throw their bodies in front of a hard ball and not be afraid of blocking and what are some of the core principles when you work with your players on blocking so I call blocking the difference maker um, and what I mean by that is everyone thinks they can be a catcher until they need to block. And then once they have to block balls in the dirt, especially if they have a pitcher who's throwing hard and they're wild and they're spiking fastballs, when the ball's flying all over the place, and then, you know, usually they'll be like, you know, I'm going to go back to the outfield. I don't want to catch. I thought I wanted to catch. So that's kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, that physical toughness. Um, with blocking, well, I'll say it this way. Human instinct says if something's flying at you, especially flying at your face, your instincts say, duck. Bob, weave, move, get out of the way. This, I don't want this to hit me. I'm going to move. So catchers, we have to go against what our instincts say and actually jump in front on purpose. So getting comfortable with the ball hitting them is, is super, super important. And so, um, and, and actually it's funny because at my camps, when we get to blocking day, I can tell almost immediately the kids that are not going to have much of a future at catcher. Because what I'll do is I get the catcher down into blocking position. So they're down on the ground on their knees. And I talk to them about body position and their posture and where should my hands be? Where should my knees be? Where should my feet be and all that? And I'll literally stand right over the top of them and take a baseball and I slam it into the ground right in front of them. So it hits the ground and then it hits them. There's some, there's some kids that just go like this. And that's it. That they just let the ball hit them. And then there's some kids that go and they start flinching and bobbing and weaving. And I explained to them, Hey, you can't be, 
moving like that, it's going to mess. You're either going to miss the block or it's going to hit you and fly off to the side because you're moving so much. You have to get comfortable with the ball hitting you. So the, the flinchers, I call them, they've got some work to do. If they're flinching, they need to get comfortable with the ball hitting them or they're not going to be a catcher. It's just the, it's just the reality of it, right? So, um, again, to kind of get young catchers comfortable with the ball hitting them, we have to hit them. <laughs> so I'll bounce the ball. I'll bounce the ball and make it hit them in the face mask. I'll bounce the ball and make it hit them in their chest, hit them in their arm. Sometimes it's, it sounds mean, but I'll do it on purpose. I'll throw it a little bit crooked and make it hit them on their forearm. So you get that smack sound. They get a little sting feeling. And if their reaction is to curl up and don't want to do the drill anymore, eh, we might have some work to do in turning them into catcher. The ones that take it and they're like, no, I'm good, coach. Go ahead, throw me another one. That's the mentality that we need. So it's actually what I call a sit and get hit series. They get down in blocking position and I'll bounce ball after ball after ball right into them, hit the ground, hit them in the mask, hit them in the chest, hit them wherever. Then we practice getting our mint position and then we get them, are they comfortable getting from their, you know, their ready position or their secondary position or even if it's a one knee setup, dropping down behind the ball. Are they comfortable? Are they quick and moving? Are they hesitating? Are they trying to catch it instead? Um, we just need to get them the ball hitting them. And again, sometimes I'll literally, instead of bouncing it, I'll go up and I'll just throw a ball right into the catcher's mask. Because <laughs> if, they're, if they're flinching and turning, they're actually risking hurting themselves. If they look at it, sometimes, sure, it hits your mask and it makes your ears ring because it's a you know really hard pitch. But yeah. for the most part, you don't get hurt. It has to be you know, the guys in the big leagues, you hear stories about foul tips in the mask and they get a concussion. They actually get concussed from the ball hitting so hard, but those balls are coming in at, you know, hundred plus miles an hour. Um, at the youth levels, there are some definite hard pitchers, but uh, rarely will you see any kind of serious type of, of injury. I got, I got hit in the mask one time in 20 years of catching and it hurt. The rest of the time I was just fine. I like how you said like the catcher, uh, they have to really get used to throwing your, their, their body in front of it and being able to take those hits and say, yeah, I'm, I'm fine and stay in the game instead of curling up. And I'm not a catcher. So sometimes I do almost imagine myself catching and it's like, but once I envision myself blocking the ball, it's like, and eh, do I really, do I really <laughs> want to try this out? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're out there a shortstop and you have to body up on some ground balls, right? You, you have to take some off the chest, body up to it and knock it down and throw them out. Sometimes you get that between hop. It is what it is. So you guys are doing it sometimes without gear on. So yeah, but I bet you'd yeah. be just fine back there. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I attended your virtual pitch calling clinic and awesome. I have to say it was, it was really, really good. There was a lot of really great content. And for me, even though I don't catch, um, I found like even for a pitcher, sometimes I do call my call, the catcher calls their games, but I get the ability to shake them off. So I was wondering at what age would be the best for your catchers to start calling their own games? So I think my, uh, my philosophy on this is probably the rarity, not the norm. I was lucky enough back in my day that coach was like, all right, go play, go call your own game. Like they rarely called pitches. I don't know if it was my era or whatever it is, or my coach's philosophy, maybe they didn't quite have the understanding of it or something and just put it on me. But uh, literally nine years old, I was already calling my own game. Now, obviously at nine years old, we don't have, sliders and all kinds of breaking balls and stuff. I mean, we did throw curveballs probably earlier than we should have a lot of them back in my day. Um, but uh, 
I think right away. I think we teach the catchers, you know, to, hey, go, go call the game. And then either in between innings or after the game, as a coach, we take notes. All right, this batter in this situation, this is what was called and this was the outcome. And then we sit down and talk with our catcher after the fact and say, hey, so you remember we had second and third. You threw a fastball when a changeup would have been the best pitch, and this is why, because the batter's reaction to this, that, that just kind of teach them how to do it and give them the freedom to call that game right away. I think it, and I did mention this in the, in the pitch calling clinic, I think it maintains the tempo of the game. A lot of times, uh, a lot of times that catcher's like, he's got a lot going on in his head, or he, he or she has a lot going on in their head, um, and coach has all their stuff going on. And so sometimes there's like this lull in the game where the catcher finally looks over at coach, coach is doing something. Then coach finally looks over and coach calls it and it just slows everything down. The infielders, instead of being all on their toes and ready to go, they start to kind of want mind wander waiting for a sign to get called. Okay. Now here we go. We're fine. So I think it keeps the tempo of the game up. I think it helps tremendously with the pitcher catcher relationship that we we're talking about mm -hmm. earlier. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think it actually helps tremendously with the uh, catcher umpire relationship as well, um, because we're keeping the tempo of the game up and a lot of umpires out there, they, they do it for the love of the game as well. Right. And I think they respect catchers who can call a good game and receive pitches correctly, block balls. And they're like, I just think uh, all of that pitch calling stuff comes uh, can be very beneficial with all those different relationships um, obviously it's going to help the catchers learn kind of develop some more game savvy and learn the game more learning about hitters learning about outcomes learning about where the defense is set up um, it was actually one of my favorite parts of being a catcher actually if not the favorite part was to you know have bases loaded in a one-run game or two-run game toward the end of the game and fool that batter and get him to pop up or get them to swing and miss because of a pitch that I called um, it was always so fun, and, and I took just as much, if not more, enjoyment out of getting a guy to pop up, strike out, or roll over on a ball as I did throwing a base runner out or getting a good hit. It was so such an important part of the game for me, and uh, I think as coaches, we should be teaching these catchers immediately. So by the time they get to the higher levels, um, they know the game. They know how to set up hitters. They know how important it is with that pitcher-catcher relationship, and uh, they're, they're good to go and dialed in by the time they get to high school and beyond. The earlier, the better. Absolutely. Perfectly said. Yep. Can you talk about what it means to pitch by the book as well as pitching backwards? And if you could give some like scenarios to support that. Sure. So pitching by the book, like we talked about yesterday is, uh, and it's kind of a funny way to put it, but it's just the reality of it. Pitching by the book is almost everybody in the park knows what pitch is coming. So pitching by the book is, after throwing a hard pitch, you throw a soft pitch. And then after you throw a soft pitch, you throw a hard pitch. After you throw a high and hard one, you go soft and low. After you throw soft and low, you go high and hard. After going soft and away, you go hard in. You know, it's just like it's doing something different every time, mixing up that batter. Um, and, and, again, by the book just means, you know, st stereotypical. Yeah pitch even the batter a lot of times knows okay they just threw one that almost hit me they're probably going to throw a low curveball now after making me move back it's just you know setting up hitters in that way and there's a lot of times in games where you can throw by the book and get the batter out okay 
Um, then throwing backwards or going against the book means, you know, basically the, the exact opposite. So every time that pet, the, the batter is expecting a fastball, you throw a breaking ball. Every time they're expecting a breaking ball, you throw a fastball. Or anytime they're expecting some, a slow pitch, an off-speed pitch, you come with a fastball and vice versa. Or after harden in, you go harden in again. After soften away, you go soften away again. So that means doubling up on a pitch, throwing the same pitch over and over again. And there are instances where we double up on a pitch. We throw the same pitch twice. Sometimes a mess with the batter will triple up on a pitch. Every once in a while, we'll quadruple up on a pitch. And if you remember in the clinic, one of the examples I showed at the end was, um, and I can't remember the pitcher's name, but he threw, he threw four straight breaking balls to Kyle Schwarber, a very powerful, very big, powerful hitter, big time home run hitter. And after the third curveball in a row, I, I, the camera goes on to Schwarber and he's like, almost has a little grin on his face. He's like, what is going yeah. on? Is that really all you're going to throw me? Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to throw. And he threw you another one. And then out of nowhere, after four curveballs in a row, then he snuck a fastball in there. And he got him to take a really weak swing at it and got him out on an easy ground ball to the first baseman. So, um, again, pitching by the book is hard in and soft away. Hard and high, soft and low. Soft and low, hard and high. Throwing kind of the exact opposite of what he threw the pitch before. Pitching backwards against the book is doing the opposite of that, trying to mix them up, double up on pitches, double up on locations, triple up on locations. Um, you know, instead of like by the book is get ahead with a fastball, get them out with off speed. Going backwards would be start them off with some kind of off speed pitch, a change up or a breaking ball, and then finish them off with a fastball. So that'd be backwards of what everyone is expecting. So that's what we mean. And again, uh, you said, you know, give some scenarios on when you might do that. Um, the example I gave yesterday in the clinic is, you know, maybe the first time through the batting order, you try and just pitch by the book the entire time through all nine batters or 10, if they have an, an EH like they do in travel ball, um, you just, you get ahead with the fastball and then you throw off speed to finish them off. Then the second time through the order, that same batter comes up, you throw that fastball he remembers his last at bat. Okay, after they got a strike on me at fastball, they threw me a breaking ball. So I'm going to stay back and hit this breaking ball. And then all of a sudden you throw another fastball and they're like, whoa, they're late. It totally fools them. So first time through the order, you pitch by the books. Second time through the order, you pitch backwards. Um, and it's not always the, that case. I mean, like I think the example I gave, you're, you're trying to pitch by the book and a guy hits a double on the gap. And then you're like, okay, well, that was kind of a fluke. I'm going to pitch to this next batter by the book. And they hit a ball in the gap. You're like, okay, this pitching by the book is not working. We need to start mixing it up right away. So there'll be instances in games, and that was some of the examples I gave is, you know, hitter's reaction to the previous pitch, success and failure of the previous pitch, what was the outcome of it. So there's different things that take into consideration but uh, to, to, to when we switch it up. But that's what pitching by the book or pitching backwards means. Before I went to the clinic that you held, um, I, I had no idea what pitching by the book or pitching backwards was. So that was part of it, like just being so informative and cool. helping me out. And almost it gave me a new approach when now next time I go out on the mound, it's like now I can use these things to help me uh, get more hitters out. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And, and as a pitcher on the pitching side, obviously as a catcher, we need to recognize this, but sometimes even as a catcher, we might miss out on something that you as the pitcher see Right. One of the examples I give a lot, I don't think I talked about this yesterday, was you're up on the mound, you're addressing a catcher, and you look at that batter, and they're standing like this. You can just see their eyes are really big, and they're frozen like a statue. 
they're already intimidated, right? Those guys that get in the box and they have this kind of stuff going on and they have this determined look on their face, you're like, okay, now it's time to go to work. This guy's got some intensity to him. He's got some swag. He's ready to smash. The kids that are frozen like a statue, you're like, okay, I got this guy. The guys that have the swag, we got to go to work. You know what I mean? So that's kind of mm-hmm. stuff to look for even when you're out there on the mound. Um, you know, sometimes it's before the first pitch is thrown. Sometimes a kid gets in there and he's got that swag and you throw that first fastball. <laughs> and then the next time he gets in the box, he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> and his swag goes away. You know what I mean? So that's stuff that we should pick up on as catchers, but a lot of times you might pick up on as a pitcher instead. So, and again, that's why I say, in my opinion, I think the pitcher should always have the ability to shake and say, no, I'm going to throw this other pitch. There's something you picked up on in the guy's swing. Um, you know, maybe you realize he's stepping out so we can beat him away. Maybe you notice he's diving in so we can get under his hands. Something that I might miss, I think the pitcher can pick up on those as well. So it's always, uh, in my opinion, the, the pitcher should have the ability to shake so they have 100% confidence what they're about to throw. Definitely. You shared that sometimes a hitter's body language after a certain pitch can determine what pitch you're going to call next. But you also mentioned like different scenarios, whether it's the hitter actually verbalizing something to the catcher or mumbling something under their breath, or if they're just like really timid or just super loose. So can you talk more about like how as a catcher you can pick up on those type of things and how that can affect what pitch you're going to call? Yeah, you know, so um, this probably happens a little bit at the lower levels. Honestly, I can't remember back that far on, and if I did, I'm sure it probably did here and there, but at the higher levels, um, especially when you have pitchers that can hit their spots, um, pitchers are getting the better arms and going with some pretty high velocity. They're starting to get some movement on their pitches. I just know in my experience, there were several times where we would purposely call a, a, um, brush back pitch, you know, a pitch inside, um, a moving back kind of pitch, go in for a purpose is what we call it. Just going inside is throwing inside, but throwing for a purpose is we're trying to get a reaction out of the batter. We're trying to get them going, uh oh, like, and, and, and it literally having to move out of the way. Sometimes you go inside, we go a little too far inside, the batter turns into it, gets hit in the arm, gets hit in the back, and they get to go to first base for free. And even in that instance, especially if the guy's throwing hard, that batter might think twice about leaning into it next time. Next time they're going to get out of the way kind of thing because it hurt pretty good. But my point is there were times where we would go in for a purpose and the guy would like do a back flop getting out of the way. They would turn away, duck, drop their bat, and they would literally like look at me like, was that on purpose? Like, are you guys trying to hit me? And then I knew right away we got them right where we want them. Every once in a while, you almost hit someone and they get like ultra focused and ultra intense and they still hit it really good. I've actually had a couple of brushback pitches and then the guy hit a home run, <laughs> um, which is like the ultimate revenge for the batter. Right. Yes. But most of the, most of the time, if you knock a guy down, they'll groan, they'll moan, they'll, they might even turn to the catcher and look at them. Um, they might look out at the pitcher, like what's going on. And now you know that they're not focused on their plan anymore. They're not focused on their task at hand. And now we can probably throw some kind of chase pitch next, throw that low and away change up, throw that low and away breaking ball. We've got the batter all frazzled in their head thinking, man, I hope this guy doesn't hit me. They're focusing on what they don't want to have happen instead of what they do want to have happen. Mm -hmm. And then we've got them right where we want them. Right. Um, And then it doesn't always have to be a fastball inside. That's just the, the best example to explain it. 
there's going to be times where you have a pitcher that they have a really good curveball. And I showed that Clayton Kershaw example with mm -hmm. Bo Bichette. He threw that curveball to Bo Bichette. Bo's a righty. Kershaw's a lefty. So it's not like the pitch even came close to hitting Bo, but his knees buckled and he jumped back out of the way like, whoa. And it wasn't even close to him. So yeah. you could tell right away as a catcher. And I know Kershaw had the same thought, like, he wants nothing to do with my hammer. Why would we not throw it again, right? And I'm not going to throw it in a hittable spot. I'm going to throw it down and try and make him chase. And that's exactly what they set him up perfectly. Funny thing is, and I think I talked about this the first session because I did two sessions of the pitch calling. I didn't talk about the first time, but this I didn't talk about it the second time. I did the first time was later in the game, Bo Bichette took Kershaw deep. I actually think he had two home runs that game. But on the, uh, the home run that he hit off Kershaw, it was off a slider, his slider instead yeah. of that curveball. I don't know why they wouldn't stick with the curveball after his reaction to it. Um, so, again, those are just two really good examples of, of how the batter reacts to what's thrown to him. We'll tell you exactly what to throw the next pitch, double up on it or switch it up and go, go with something else. But those are two good, really good examples. So I remember when, you, uh, when I attended the clinic, you talked about how – uh, if maybe the catcher gets a call and the hitter's pretty frustrated with it and then you can pick up on that as a catcher and you see, okay, now let's make him chase. I believe you gave an example of, um, was it Ryan Braun? Ryan Braun, yeah. I, uh, and you gave an example like he was frustrated with a certain pitch and then all of a sudden the pitcher, he goes out and he throws that same pitch but for a chase pitch. And since he's frustrated, he goes out to get it would a catcher almost look up at the hitter to check that? Yeah, absolutely. Our eyes, our head's always on a swivel and we need to be attentive to that kind of stuff. And this is something I think that's really important for especially young catchers to understand. It's super important for us to develop a positive relationship with the umpire because if we become their buddies throughout the game, if that batter disrespects the umpire, looks back at him, gives them a look like, like Braun did, start arguing with them. If that umpire, uh, I'm sorry, if that batter disrespects the umpire, that next pitch, we could probably call a fastball four baseballs off the plate, and that umpire is going to ring up the batter. We call it doing their dance. They're going to ring up that batter because this batter just disrespected me. His strike zone just went from a regular strike zone to this big. Right. So we need to watch that, pay attention to that. Now, if, if I'm catching and I've been having bad body language, I haven't developed that relationship with the umpire. There's been pitches that I've caught that I thought were striking. He's called the ball and I do this and I kind of drop my shoulders and, like, and I throw back to the pitcher out of frustration and my pitcher's out there acting frustrated and kind of showing up the umpire. If that's the situation, we're not going to get any calls. But if we've developed a good relationship with them, we've talked it out throughout the game, we've become buddies with the umpire, we're on a first name basis, you know, we've caught a pitch, we thought was a strike, umpire called the ball, I throw back to the pitcher, I can actually kind of quietly go, Bob, was that low? And he'll talk it out, yeah, yeah, that, I had that low. Man, I thought that was a good pitch. No, it was low, Todd. Okay, okay. You know, just tap, talk it out with them, develop that relationship. So in those instances during the game where the umpire maybe makes a bad call, or what the batter and um, saw was, or thought was a bad call and shows up the umpire, or if the other team's coach is starting to bark at the umpire, come on, Blue, that's a terrible call. Umpires, they're <laughs> human. They're going to kind of – I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but they might hold a grudge a little bit. And 
the other team's strike zone expands and we can start to work pitches off of the plate that the batter can't even reach and the umpire is going to call a strike. So yes, be very attentive to how the hitter reacts. Be very attentive if the hitter starts to argue with the umpire, if the other team's coach is yelling at the umpire, if the other team's bench is being really disrespectful and yelling at the umpires, that's just going to help us out. So we need to stay positive and develop a good relationship along with a bad relationship for the other side. That's just going to help us out tremendously. Definitely. As an infielder myself, uh, I know that footwork is a key component to being able to make a play and uh, getting a good throw first. The footwork is also extremely important for catchers. What are some of the best ways that catchers can improve their mobility and improve on their footwork? So I have my, I have four of my favorite foot quickness drills and exercises that I tell my catchers to do. Number one, jump rope jump rope isn't just you know uh what's that called double dutch in the park with with uh you know friends like it's it's, for whatever reason there's this like stereotypical thing about jump rope it's like for girls or something um and hopefully i didn't come across wrong but my point is elite level athletes almost all of them do some type of jump rope training right i always use uh fighters like uh, boxers and ufc fighters if you ever watch those guys do jump rope, it's unbelievable. They're doing like double unders and triple unders and crossovers and swing it backwards and running in place and their feet move so ridiculously fast. The same concepts will help catchers as well. So doing jump rope, that plyometric of hitting the ground and getting up, hitting the ground and getting up, hitting the ground and getting up, the plyometric movements is going to develop the foot quickness that we need to be able to, you know, throw runners out go out and feel the bunt, retrieve a ball in the dirt that we blocked and just get our feet moved into the position they need to be in to make the throw quickly and efficiently, right? Like correctly and efficiently. So jump rope, um, I always encourage my catchers to get their own jump rope and start to jump rope regularly, like three or four times a week before practice, before, even before a game, if you have an area where you can go do it, you know, comfortably and, 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 you know, obviously not necessarily out on the field, but in a bullpen or something, but it's a great warm up exercise. Um, gets the heart pumping tremendously and it's going to get all the muscles activated in our lower body and, and develop that foot quickness. Um, so jump rope is number one. Number two, it's called dot drill. Um, you may have seen those black mats with five white dots on it. Um, so if, if my fingers are my legs, they're on the dots, um, my feet are apart, then my feet jump forward and touch the middle dot and then they spread back out. So my feet are going apart together, apart together, mm-hmm. apart together. I'm jumping on the dots on the ground. Um, there's dot drill forward and back. There's dot drill with a turn. You can do single foot hopping on all the dots, two foot jumps on all the dots. You can do like hopscotch type stuff on the dots, but dot drill is another great foot quickness drill. There's line drill. So you, we can just use a, a, a foul line as a, you know, the, the yeah. uh, general idea. You jump from side to side over the line as fast as possible. You jump forward and back over the line as fast as possible. You do like scissor, switches with your feet you can do crossover with your feet but you're jumping over the line with little tiny short low to the ground jumps again the the idea is that the tempo is just fast you're hitting the ground getting up hitting it up hitting it up hitting it up Um, there's another one is line drill and then finally um, and I do this at most of my camps we'll do agility ladder Um, so the ladder we lay it out on the ground and there's all the different there's literally thousands of different variations of footwork drills you can do through an agility ladder some coaches hate it some coaches love it. Uh, we definitely don't call it a speed ladder. It's not necessarily going to make you faster, but there's definitely 
Um, it's a big fancy word, but I'll explain what it means. There's a huge neuromuscular coordination component to the agility ladder. Neuro means your brain and your nerves that go through your whole body. Muscular is obviously your muscles. Neuromuscular coordination is just your brain telling your feet to do something and they do it in an efficient and coordinated manner, right? So the more agility ladder exercises you do, you know, the, the in, in, out, out, and the icky shuffles and the karaoke's yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, the more you do those, the more coordinated you're going to be with your feet. So um, foot quickness is actually in, on my list of, of most important things for throwing success. And those are my four favorite exercises to help catchers and athletes develop quick feet. It's going to be jump rope, dot drill, line drill, and agility ladder. Yeah, those are all great tools and things for any position, any sport, really. Uh, it can help with just agility and being able to develop quick feet, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's what I say it all the time. It's, it's beneficial for all athletes. It's beneficial for all baseball players, in particular, catchers, middle infielders, footwork around the bag, and even first baseman, for sure. When it comes to throwing, like, to a base – what would you, what do you tell your catchers to focus on when it comes to like stealing or back pick? So for, uh, for throwing, I have what I call my big four. I told you with receiving, I have my big three for throwing. Number one is going to be mindset with throwing. Okay. Um, what I mean by mindset is it's two pronged. Number one, confidence in your abilities. We already had that talk about confidence. Confidence comes from reps. So practice it a lot. So if it happens in a game, you've practiced so often, you're just an autopilot and you know, you can throw that runner out. Sometimes I'll call it the Johnny bench mindset. Johnny bench is uh, arguably one of the best catchers, if not the best catcher of all time. Um, and he had a famous quote where he said, I can throw out any man alive. Like it didn't matter who, how fast they were, who they were. He knew in his mind he was going to throw them out. So having that mindset is super, super important. The second component to mindset is uh, knowing who the good runners are. So we have a little anticipation or we're expecting them to go. Um, there's going to be runners that are what we call plus runners, that they go depending on game situation, they can steal a base. And then we have plus, plus runners like the Billy Hamiltons. Like when they get on, we pretty much know they're going to go right? Everyone knows they're going to go. So just when we anticipate, we have that mindset, we're going to react quicker um, and even move quicker. Second thing with throwing is you want to get rid of the ball as quickly as possible. So quick hands, we call it. A quick release is essential. Some coaches will actually put arm strength or quick feet ahead of quick hands. But in my experience and all the video analysis and breakdowns that I've done over the years, the catches that get rid of the ball quickly um, have just as much success as the catchers that have strong arms. I actually always use Tony Walters for an example for this. Tony is um, known as having some of the quickest hands and one of the most athletic catchers in baseball. His average velocity is like 79 miles an hour. It's under 80 miles an hour. But his average, wow. pop, his average pop time is still under a, a 2.0. It's a 1.96. At least that was his numbers last season. Right, so he doesn't have a bazooka for an arm, but he still has a ton of success throwing runners out because he is so quick with getting rid of it. And obviously when we get rid of it, we have to put it somewhere near the bag. So quick hands and then our accuracy, put it somewhere close so our infielder can put the tag on. So number one is mindset. Number two is quick hands. Number three is quick feet. Okay, and we already talked about the importance of quick feet. And then the fourth thing is gonna be arm strength and mechanics. So arm strength is definitely a difference maker. We wanna to strive to be as quick as possible. Um, the average release time 
So release just means by the time the ball hits the mitt and then the ball leaves the catcher's fingers. So from pop to release, that's release time. The average is around 0.7. The elites are between 0.55 and 0.65. Um, when you can focus on quick release, you'll have tons of success, but continue to work on your arm strength. And again, I'm kind of directing this to your young listeners, kind of yeah. kids around your age. Focus on getting rid of it quickly, but continue to do your band work and your long toss and your, you know, your push-ups and getting stronger. So then you've worked on the quickness. You have that dialed in. Then you add arm strength, and now you're going to have tons of success. And I always use JT Ramuto as an example of that. He's got one of the fastest releases. He averages about a 0.65, 0.66, and he throws the ball harder than most in the game. His average velocity was 88 miles an hour. You have your Jorge Alfaro's and your Martin Maldonado's. Those guys throw the ball around 90 miles an hour as well. Gary Sanchez, um, but they're not quite as quick as JT is. So JT has the quick hands. He's got the bazooka for an arm. That's why he's considered the best throwing catcher in the world. He averages a 1.88 pop time when he throws it down to second um, because of his quick hands and his, and his great arm. So that's what I tell kids to focus on when they ask about how can I have some more throwing successes. Get rid of it quickly. Right, work on the jump rope, the uh, you know agility ladder, whatever it is for your quick feet. Continue to work on your arm strength, and you'll have tons of success. I I know you've mentioned um, earlier like some characteristics that good catchers should have. So when it comes to the mindset of a catcher, would you say how much would you say is above the shoulders? Well, you know, whether regardless if you're a catcher or whatever position you're playing, and I'm actually a perfect example of this, um, I actually I, I, I tell stories all the time at my camp. So um, I have what I call Coach Todd's final thought, and they're called lessons from a coach who should have made it as a player but didn't. Um, I had I was six foot three, a ripped 200 pounds. I could hit the ball 400 feet. I could throw the ball close to 100 miles an hour. I could dunk a basketball. I could do the splits. I could play first. I could play third. Obviously, I was a catcher. Put me in the outfit. It doesn't matter where. Athletic ability wise, I was elite. I was very elite. What I never practiced and what I didn't work on and was very bad at was the mental side of the game. And we touched on this a little bit earlier in one of the topics. I can't remember where it came up, but. Um, I can't stress enough how your physical abilities, again, whether you're a catcher or whatever you play, your physical abilities will only get you so far in this game. It's your attitude, staying positive, even in what might be considered negative situations. Um, your effort, always doing your best, never getting down. Oh, I'm having a bad game and you just don't run hard. You don't, you know, put your, you don't stay focused and your ability to control your emotions, those three things are what is gonna not only help you get to the next level, but stay at the next level and succeed at that level. And it's easy to keep your head up high, a smile on your face, your chest bowed out. When things are going good, it's how you react when things go bad that matters. So for me personally, that first at bat of the game, or first inning catching, if I threw a guy out or I hit a ball in the gap or hit a home run or just hit the ball hard, I'd usually have a pretty good game. If I struck out, popped out, rolled over, made an error, if something bad or something you know went wrong early in the game, I'd almost always have a bad game. And that's not the way it should be. We have to learn from the failures and move on, not dwell on the failures. Yes. Um, it's such a, it's a skill that has to be practiced. 
And it's something that I never really did. And that was like the ultimate demise of, of my career. And I became a coach at 24 years old because I couldn't handle the mental side of the game. No one ever really taught me. No one ever had these kind of discussions with me when I was a young kid um, that is, you know, just kind of let us play. So, and I, I got myself in trouble a few times. And I guess I could tell a quick personal story just uh, as an example. Um, you know, there's, there was plenty of instances of this early in my career, but the one that kind of ended it all for me, I struck out in a game. I was playing in the Phillies organization, the South Atlantic League. Um, I struck out on a pitch that I thought I should have smashed. On the way back to the dugout, I broke my bat over my knee. I threw it in the trash can. Um, and I basically did that one too many times. There was player development people there in the stands and coaches got to talking and managers and player development and they decided they'd had enough of my attitude and they cut me from the team. I got released from my contract um, because my attitude stunk. At the time, I wasn't playing very well either. I was in a little bit of a slump hitting wise. And so the coaches looked at my numbers watch my little temper tantrums and they released me from my contract. So I guess to kind of get back to your initial question there, you know, and I can't stress enough, this is whether it's a catcher or anybody, you have to learn to control your emotions. That's such an important part of the game. You say how much is between the ears, you know, there's that, that's saying that the game is 90% mental. That is 100% accurate. You need to be able to deal with the failures of the game. It's really the difference between the big leaguers and everybody else is their work ethic. I would say it this way, when you feel like you've worked enough, work some more, and then their ability to deal with failure. You could even add in their ability to make adjustments because they're facing the best of the best. If you're hitting, you're facing the best pitchers. If you're pitching, you're facing the best hitters. You need to learn to make adjustments to face the best of the best, and you have to understand that you might throw your best pitch and they still hammer it in the gap, or you might take your best swing and still swing and miss. How you react to those failures is going to make a huge difference in in uh, your future success. Yeah, being able to bounce back and just being able to learn from your failures is. Yes, got to stay level headed. You absolutely have to stay level headed. And I used to let myself get so frustrated, and I would just boil over to the point where I would do stupid stuff like break bats and, you know, do just do things that I shouldn't be doing. And and again, it was my ultimate demise. So it's, again, it's lessons from a coach who should have made it as a player, but didn't. It's, it's great that I get to pass on these messages to kids like yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's something to be said about the guys who made it to a high level and being able to tell you how they did it. And then there's guys like me that should have made it to a higher level. I, I mean, I played professional, so that's pretty cool in yeah, itself, definitely. but I didn't reach my ultimate goal of playing in the big mm -hmm. leagues. And there's the lessons and things and mistakes that I made that I can pass on to kids like yourself and your listeners that, uh, that hopefully don't make the same mistakes I did and, and figure out how to, how to, you know, make the adjustments, deal with the failures and move on. So before we wrap it up, uh, can you recommend at least two current big league catchers that younger guys can really learn from just by watching? You know what? Yeah, there's, uh, I think the obvious one is JT Rumuto. Um, in my opinion, I mean, he's like, he was a gold glove winner. Um, he does have a pretty unique receiving style um, where he just kind of catches the pitch and rakes it through the zone. He doesn't really present it to the umpire, um, which is pretty unique to him. Um, but he has a lot of success. He's in the top 10 in receiving, receiving metrics. Um, as we were just talking about, he's actually uh, the best throwing catcher in baseball right now. Um, because of his arm strength and mm -hmm. quickness. Um, and then uh, he's always top 10 in blocking as well. I think he was like 
top five in receiving, number one in throwing, and like ninth in blocking. Or it might have been the other way around. It might have been ninth in receiving and, and like fifth or something like that in blocking. Um, and, and I always, I've actually posted about this on my social media. Um, you can learn a lot just by sitting there and watching the best of the best, watching a game and see how they do they, what they do. Um, JT is kind of what they call a read catcher. There's obviously, you probably noticed that a lot of catchers in the big leagues now set up on one knee. They mm -hmm. found there's a whole bunch of benefits to setting up on one knee in particular with receiving side of things, but it can also help with blocking. Although a lot of people would argue that it messes up blocking. It definitely makes a little bit more challenging on lateral blocks, but one of the most common mistakes in blocking, especially for young catchers is they're late getting down to their knees to block. Well, if I'm on one knee and the pitcher bounces it, I'm already down. So it's going to help me be on time. Yeah. Um, and it, it, there's definitely, we could talk about that for the next hour and a half, but I won't say much more about that. But um, to get back to your question, JT Ramuto is a really good example for, for young catchers to watch um, and learn from because he does everything so well. And again, that's why he was a, a gold glover. Yeah. Um, and then the other one that, that uh, actually a lot of people kind of get surprised when I say, um, he's actually a former gold glover as well, but he's not, for whatever reason, he's not considered to be at this JT Rumuto level, or whatever, but it's Tucker Barnhart. Um, and I think that one thing that's unique about Tucker is everyone is uh, so focused on the one knee setups and they'll even do it with runners on, but Tucker, and he'll even tell you this, he, he actually spoke on uh, another podcast out there and stated this, that when there's runners on base, he just does not feel comfortable getting on one knee. So he stays in a traditional setup with the runners on, and I believe he's top three in blocking metrics in baseball, at least top five. He's really up there as one of the best blocking catchers in baseball. Um, but in my opinion, he does everything well. He's really transitioned to this new receiving technique. He'll set up on one knee when needed, um, manipulating the ball. Um, again, elite, elite level blocker. Nothing gets by that guy. And he's got some of the quickest hands as well um, in baseball and has a lot of throwing success. And I just like his, his approach and his mindset and his ability to work with his pitching staff. Um, so again, and, and actually before I get lit up on social media about not saying Yachty <laughs> or Salvi, some of these, you know, these savvy vets that are out there. Um, it's hard to pick like a favorite. I love watching all those guys. Yachty has been one of my favorites forever. Salvi has been one of my favorites forever. Um, Roberto Perez is obviously always uh, underrated for some reason, but obviously gold glove winner, one of the best. Um, there's, there's so many out there that you can watch, but right now, in my opinion, I use Tucker Barn has Hart as an example on blocking and then just watching how JT approaches the game. Um, those are two of the best to really learn from. Yeah. I mean, two great examples. Um, I'm not a catcher myself, but I, I have seen them in the success that they have and it's, it's incredible what they do. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have any clinics that you're currently working on or projects that you're working on? Yeah, you know what? So obviously, I know you're aware of this. We're all in a pretty unique situation right now um, with the COVID virus thing going on. And some people right now are lucky enough to be able to play some baseball. Um, but there's still a lot of states and cities out there and leagues that have just been shut down. Um, and when this all started to go down in March, um, I was lucky enough to have filmed almost all of my drills and exercises over the past few years. And uh, doing a lot of online stuff. Yeah. Um, so I have, I literally have, I, I don't have a catching one. I'm sorry. I don't have a blocking one put together, 
but I have a throwing program out there called Drop Your Pop. Um, it's actually the second version, so it's called Drop Your Pop 2.0. Um, I have one called Mint Magic for receiving out there. Um, I have a, uh, I always get asked, how can I throw the ball harder? How can I be more explosive? Um, how can I get more endurance? So I developed a, a eight-week strength program that's uh, totally doable for youth kids. Um, so I have that on there. So all, all those are, are online programs that I have going on are on thecatchingguide.com. Um, my social media pages are basically clinics almost every day. Mm -hmm. Um, when I'm super busy, I don't get a chance to post, but when I'm not, I'll post, you know, at least once, sometimes two or three times a day and I'll post the breakdowns and, and, you know, they're always very educational and and how to help kids out. So I'm just the catching guy on all the social media platforms. Um, and then what I've started to do is try and direct everybody to what's called the catching lab. Um, and this is a perfect time and opportunity for everyone out there to get some online work and continue to work even when they're shut down and unable to get on the field. The catching lab is, is all done online. Um, it's self-paced. Uh, and we're also going to start doing a whole bunch of Facebook lives. I know not everybody's on Facebook, but we also have Zoom clinics coming up. Like I just did the pitch calling. Mm-hmm. We're in the process of working on doing a receiving one. Mint Magic will probably be the next online one that I do. We'll do a, a, a blocking one. I call it Be A Wall. Um, I just did a little practice one of a drop your pop. So uh, working on throwing session all online. So all that stuff, if they follow me on my social media, The Catching Guy, um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, go to thecatchingguy.com. And then if for the, those that are on Facebook, um, there's I have a page uh, that's uh, kind of a smaller group page. It's called uh, How to Catch featuring The Catching Guy. And I'm constantly giving tips in there in that group as well. So well, where is the best uh, place that our listeners can reach you? Yeah, the, the website is thecatchingguide.com. Um, that has all my contact info on there, my email if anyone ever has a question um, or, or, you know, concern or whatever. Again, my social media, um, join the, the hundreds of 100,000 followers that I have with, uh, and, and again, it's on Instagram, uh, just search The Catching Guy, Twitter, The Catching Guy, or Facebook, The Catching Guy, and that's all my, all my pages will pop up on there for them. Well, Todd, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to share some incredible insight with the youth community. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to help. Um, hopefully they find some, some takeaways from our talk. Uh, yeah, I had a blast. Thanks so much. Thank you all for listening in. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to hit the subscribe button and be the first to know when new episodes launch. Check us out at borntobaseball.com for free resources and new gear. And of course, on social media, at Born to Baseball, where we can connect live. Now, let's play ball. Check it out.